Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and in today's episode, I would like to introduce you to the longest and most ambitious magical epic from Urdu language called Talisam Hoshoba. Now, Talisam Hoshoba was published between 1883 to 1893 by the Naval Kishore Press in Lucknow, which was the first multilingual but mostly Urdu-Persian press established in Lucknow by Munshi Naval Kishore. And he had commissioned Muhammad Hassan Hussain Jah, one of the leading writers and storytellers of his time, to write the epic Hoshroba. And Jah basically wrote the first four volumes, and after that, the novel Kishore publishers handed it over to Ahmed Hussain Kamar, who finished the remaining volumes. With eight volumes, Talisam Hoshroba covers about 8,300 pages. Now, sadly, the epic has not really been translated fully, but Musharraf Ali Faruqi, one of the great translators from Canada, who had previously translated the Dastan of Amir Hamza, has started translating it. And I've read the first volume that he translated, and it's a wonderful translation, and I do hope that he finishes the translation. But if you're curious, you can always find Hoshroba, The Land and the Talisam, the first volume on Amazon, and read it, and you will not regret it. So in this episode, I will provide a brief overview of the background of the narrative and then the structure of the narrative and what is it that makes it so unique and original. So as a writer, the smartest thing that Muhammad Hussain Jar did was to of course make use of the materials previously available but to also placing his narrative, his dastan within a pre-existing larger dastan, and that is dastan of Amir Hamza, which is famous in Arabic, Persian, as well as in Urdu tradition, and it's called Hamza Nama. Now, Hamza Nama, and a translation of it by Musharraf Ali Faruqi is available, and it is called the dastan of Amir Hamza. It's a really good translation. The story in dastan of Amir Hamza revolves around the figure of Amir Hamza, who is a mythical figure within the narrative, but roughly based on his namesake from actual Islamic history for being Prophet Muhammad's uncle Hamza, who was famous for his bravery. But that's where the resemblance ends, because the story is in, set in pre-Islamic times, during the times of the Achaemenian Empire when Noshirwan was the king of Persia. Now in Dastan of Amir Hamza, Amir Hamza is the warrior. He has two childhood friends. One is called Mukbil the Loyal, Mukbil Wafadar, who is an archer. And the second friend is Amr, a yar which means Amr the Trickster. Now, by and large, in Dastan of Amir Hamza, Mukbul Wafadar kind of falls by the wayside, but it becomes the story of Hamza, the warrior, and Amr Ayar, the Trickster. 
the smart one, the one who figures things out. And then that entire narrative has its own struggles and everything else. Now what Muhammad Hussain Jah does is he places the beginning of his story at a certain stage during Hamza's campaign. So what we learn is that Hamza is following this false god, this giant called Laka, right? And who's been escaping Hamza's forces and he has now entered this magical territory called Talisam Hoshoba. And that's where Talisam Hoshoba begins. Now, what I consider the brilliance of this technique is that it allows Muhammad Asanja to use the characters from the previous epic and lends him continuity because he can now also tap into the audience of the son of Amir Hamza and tell them a new story in which Hamza is still a main character, but he doesn't drive the narrative. And remember that Muhammad Sanja also wanted to be a public reader of these stories, right? And this gives him access to that audience. So in order to really read Talisam Hoshroba, it is not mandatory to read the Astana of Amir Hamza, but being aware of it would help you a lot. And as I said, the English translation of it is available. So as the story begins, we are in Amir Hamza's military camp. And they have camped by this mountainside and they are making their plans as to how to get to this false god, Laka, who has sought sanctuary with a local ruler there. They don't really know yet that they are up against a magical world. Now Hamza has been pitted against other magical worlds too, but this is going to be a completely different experience and that is where the narrative starts. Now before I go into explaining the story and the talism itself, I think it's important to keep in mind what we mean when we say a talism and then describe talism Hoshoba and then see how the story unfolds. literally translated is a magical world. But in the Arab, Persian, and Urdu tradition, a talism as a magical world is a self-contained world. It's a self-regulating world. But each magical world has its own secret written on a tablet, hidden somewhere at the heart of the world itself. So the function of the hero is to fight through the outer layers of the talism and to find the tablet upon which is inscribed the death of the talism itself. And after the conqueror of the talism finds it and reveals it to the world, the magical world becomes. Now this is not a key, even though it is translated as a key in Arabic, Persian and Urdu, it's always a takhti tablet upon which is inscribed the system or the way that the talism can be defeated. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we talk about talism hoshroba. Now a talism also always has a terminal point. It's created through magic. It has a lifetime and then it has an ending 
and that ending is always pretty much brought about by the conqueror of the Thales. So in so many ways if you look at it slightly critically you would realize that the entire purpose of the Thalesan then is to hide the very secret that can undo it. And that is the moment where Hamza's forces encounter Thalesan Hoshroba. Thalesan Hoshroba has been in existence for we don't know how long but it has now reached its final phase the signs are there that it will soon end and that the conqueror of the thalesan has arrived so the entire eight volume work then are the actions of the emperor of the thalesan to delay or to maybe rewrite the destiny of the very magical world that he rules but these are some of the things to keep in mind as we talk about Thalesan Hoshaba. Another thing to keep in mind is the Dastan tradition itself. Now Dastan, roughly translated as an epic, actually is a more complex mode of storytelling than the epic poem or epic tradition in the West. A Dastan usually involves adventures of one or two heroes across different landscapes, different worlds even. And the story is always driven through the actions of the main hero and his accomplices, but also it always has an enemy or something to be conquered. And it tends to be a long narrative. And most Dastans were long narratives that weren't necessarily written, but were narrated in public readings, in public gatherings. But in the case of Thalesam Hoshroba, even though the inscriber or the compiler writes it, he also then enacts it as an oral dastan by performing public readings because he knew that that is how a story becomes successful through the reputation of the storyteller. So let's go and look at Thalesam Hoshroba its architecture, its organization, and talk about the main figures in the story and see what kind of light that can shed on our understanding of Hoshaba. As a magical word, Elisam Hoshaba has three levels or three dimensions. The Zahir, which is the manifest part of the Thalesan, which most people can see where most of the population lives. The Batin, which is the hidden dimension where the king and the queen and everyone else lives and resides. And then Zulmat, the third dimension, which is darkness or the dark dimension. And that is where pretty much all the major secrets of the Talisman are kept and only few people have access to it. Talisam's original king was Lachin, but he and his wife were ousted by one of his lieutenants, Afrasiab. And now, at this moment, Afrasiab and the queen, Herat, rule the Talisam. Now, Afrasiab is an interesting character, both Afrasiab and Herat is that they are immortal in one sense, and that is that their souls, so to speak, or their life doesn't reside in them. They have their 
different copies of them running around everywhere and most of the times if you encounter Frasia he has the power to project himself anywhere so even if you kill one of the copies of Frasia you will not be able to kill him because the original is hidden in the bathin or in sulma very rarely does Frasia present himself in his real self and herod pretty much mostly lives in the bathin not in the zahir and she has a whole palace and a garden there and circle there so this is the first couple of the thalassa now afrasia commands armies of sorcerers and sorceresses and he has at his disposal the knowledge of things that have gone before him and the knowledge of things to come which is the book of samri associated with historical wizard and magicians from the persian tradition samri and every now and then he looks up in the book as to what is about to happen afrasiab knows at this point that the final stage of the lesson has arrived and that the conqueror of the talism is about to enter the talism so from here till the end of the 8000 page dastan his actions are meant to delay the unbecoming of the talism or to attempt to rewrite its lifespan that is what he is fighting towards against him of course now as we will learn more about characters and who is opposing him will be the forces of one of Hamza's grandsons supported by Amr Ayar so that is the conflict the forces of the conqueror against Afrasia and his forces and that's the basic conflict in this long beautiful winding narrative Talisman is Prince Asad who is Hamza's grandson and while out on a hunting trip he accidentally ventures into the outskirts of the talisman and is captured and when his charger when his horse comes back empty that's when everyone thinks that he has been killed but Amr Ayar is tasked by Hamza to go and find out the truth and that starts the new narrative because from here amar will move into the talisman seeking the prince and a parallel dastan will start within the dastan of amir hamza so amar eventually rescues the prince or tries to rescue him but he also meets a few other sorceresses the leader of whom is mahrukh sahrchishan mahrukh the magic eye and she is a senior sorceress was a governor under Afrasia but has had differences with him and Amr in a fight somehow subdues her and she owes her allegiance or promises her allegiance to Amr Ayar's cause and thus is born the beginning of a rebel army which has normal soldiers soldiers who are not wizards or sorcerers and an army of sorcerers and sorceresses who start joining this rebellion so that's how this one big army is created in opposition to the talisman and will now follow 
the narrative of their fight against the Talisa. Now, along with Asad are Amar Ayar and his four students, so five tricksters. So while the Dastan focuses on a formulaic method of warfare, Afrasiab sends a powerful wizard or a sorceress to attack the rebel camp. And the you know, rebel camp mobilizes its troops. The trickster's job is to figure out how to kill the leading sorcerer or sorceress even before the battle starts. So the action is on two levels, on a heroic level where battles are being fought, and then on the level of the tricksters who are kind of like secret agents. And it's important to understand Amr's special gifts to understand his role. Now, all the three friends that I mentioned in Dastan of Amir Hamza were given certain divine gifts by different figures. Now, Amr, being the least attractive of the three, he is a comical figure, he is tall, thin like a reed. He was given the gift that he can outrun anything on this planet. Then he was given the gift of song, which is called Lahne Daudi, right? The song of David, that when he sings, he can mesmerize all the listeners if they are listening to him sing. Then he can take any form. I mean, he uses makeup and everything to transform himself also, but he can take any form, change shapes, become a young kid, a girl, a woman. That's one of his capabilities. Now, Amr's biggest trait is that he's exceptionally greedy and petty and also very cruel. And that worked really well because when he was juxtaposed against Hamza, Hamza took on all the positive qualities of a hero being noble, compassionate, brave, whereas Amr took on all the negative connotations of a human personality. So they were this duo. But since Amr is greedy, he always wants money. He never spends it. He's very stingy with it. So he was also gifted a bag, a pouch, which is called a zambil. And the beauty of that pouch is that it, like Amr, it's insatiable. Anything that he gathers, the wealth, the gems, everything, he puts it in the zambil and he can carry it. It's kind of like a magic bag. And then when he needs anything, all he has to do is put his hand on the zambil and ask for it and that thing materializes. There is an account of the zambil in one of the volumes where we are told that worlds upon worlds existed in it. There were kingdoms and principalities and wars going on inside his zambil. So that is Amr. But by the first volume, these two fighting forces emerge. The rebel camp led by the lover of Prince Asad in his absence and Amr Ayar and their overall leader is the matriarch Mahro. And on the other hand is Afrasia, who constantly keeps sending his soldiers, his powerful sorcerers to fight against the rebel army. And the narrative is mostly focused on the war, but also the trickster figures trying to figure out how to undo the magic. That is kind of the formulaic frame of the story. Now, it's also important to keep in mind that the world that the authors, the writers, the narrators of the Dastan create is pretty two-dimensional. It's pretty binaristic. There is good and there is evil and not much in between. And the purpose of the good is to completely vanquish evil. 
right? And evil is represented by Afrasiab's side. And so the narrative is pretty uncomplicated in that sense. What makes it complicated, and which I'm afraid doesn't come across in any translation, is the language that is used, the actions of the Ayars, the small intrigues, and the poetry that's included in the original because that poetry kind of breaks the monotony and gives us something new to read. Now, it's also interesting to realize that the original in Urdu is also quite erotic, right? There is a lot of merrymaking going on. The poems are very erotic, right? And that is something that I'm afraid will not come across in the English translation. So as I read Amir Hamza's translation of Hamzanama Musharraf Ali Farooqis and I taught it, one of the main things that came across pretty clearly was that Hamza was a kind of a flat character and the story was repetitive and I think the reason that happens is because we miss the nuances of the Persianized Urdu in which the epic was written. So that pretty much is the story. All these fights go on Finally, Afrasiab in the final stage unleashes the seven Bala, the seven monsters that he has in the third dimension of the Thalissan, which is the hidden dimension, the Zulmut, the dark. And after he has unleashed those seven figures, those seven powerful, elemental, titanic sorcerers and sorceresses, he is finally defeated the prince is liberated and he finds the tablet and by finding the tablet and reciting the inscription on it the talisman becomes undone that generally is the narrative now i would also like to explain in a few minutes you know the way the city the capital city is organized and what's its significance for the story so i'll do that and then maybe just give a few concluding thoughts about the epic city is called Shehre-Napur-San. Rough translation would be the city of no questions. So the basic idea is that in this city, if you enter it as a stranger, you are not likely to ask any questions or question anything that's going on. Now the city is surrounded by a river which is called Dariyai Khune Rama or the river of flowing blood and the outside world is connected to the city through a bridge which is kind of like a smoke bridge and in the beginning of the bridge are these towers three levels of towers the first level has beautiful fairy princesses dancing and singing and they are throwing pearls into the water that the fish come and catch and then swim off with them the second level is another group of fairies. And the third level is where Nubian slaves, African slaves, are in a perpetual fight, sword fight. And it's their blood that, when it trips into the river, gives it, it its name, the river of flowing blood. Now, in order to enter the city, you have to find a way of crossing it. And the only way to cross it is through magic, and with the help of a wizard. So that's why a lot of energies in the beginning are spent by Amr and others to find a 
out ways of entering the city. Now this city is in the Zahir part of the Thalissan, the manifest part of the Thalissan. And that's where is the usual court of Afrasia where he hardly ever comes in person but his replica is the one that leads the daily process of the court. And this is the city where Amr first enters and is introduced to the Thalissan but also this is where he encounters his first sorceress, Humar, whom he captures and who eventually converts to his cause. Then as he's leaving the city, he run into, runs into, into Mahroch. And Mahroch is this wise, powerful sorceress. And she joins Amr's forces because her niece is in trouble with Afrasia. So as the magical descriptions go, I can't really rehearse that for you, but if you ever read it, even in English translation, the city of Shehrinapursan, the city of no questions, is really magically rendered. And what makes it magical is the places that are described, but the actions that people are doing. But here is an interesting thing, and this comes from quite a few critics who have read the work carefully because they will point out that a lot of the customs, traditions, the trades mentioned in the epic are drawn from the Lucknow culture. Now, the Lucknow culture was from the kingdom of Avad, right, which was a parallel kingdom in 18th century to the Mughal kingdom of Delhi. But it had its own peculiar culture of the elite and the people, and a lot of the vocabularies of the status symbols or descriptions of the elite that are provided in the epic are from the Lucknow culture, even down to the point of the language that the servants use or the language that people in the street use. And that's another important aspect of the epic, which probably will get lost in a translation. But that's where I hope that Urdu scholars would come in and contribute. So overall, just to sum up the epic itself, it's a journey of Prince Asad along with Amr, the trickster, to conquer this magical world. The magical world will fall eventually when the prince finds the tablet upon which is inscribed the undoing script of the Thalissam. The king of the Thalissam is Afrasyab, his queen is Hirat, they are powerful sorcerers and they marshal large armies of wizards and witches and sorcerers and sorceresses. And the conflict is, in a way, a dualistic conflict between good and evil. Now, the writers and narrators of the story, since the story is placed before the birth of Prophet Muhammad and hence before the birth of Islam, also create a proto-Islamic mythology. So the religion that Amr and Hamza and his followers follow is called Dine Ibrahimi, the religion of Abraham. And it's some of the tenets of Islam, but it's not necessarily Islam. But that is what these people are fighting for. The God is the God of Abraham, who will eventually be transformed into the God of Muslims. 
And that's another interesting technical detail that one ought to be aware of. So these are some of my thoughts about the Kalissum, about how it's organized, about some of the formulaic aspects of it. But I do want to talk about at least one sorceress, one princesses, one of the princesses, Bahar, who is my favorite in the epic, but who also has the most powerful magic. And the way she is described and written about is probably the most beautiful rendering of a female character in an epic which isn't necessarily about gender equality, which has powerful sorceresses and powerful witches, but still is in so many ways a male-dominant epic. So that I'll do towards the last section, but another formulaic aspect that I forgot to mention is that just like Asad, the prince, the conqueror, has six ayars, five along with Umar, I'd say. Similarly, Malika Herat, the queen, Herat, also has five of her trickster girls. And most of the times, in a comical way, they are the ones who fight against the male ayars, and then eventually towards the end they are paired up and they fall in love with each other. And that's another important layer of light-hearted part of the narrative that is th- that runs through and through through the epic. So that's all I have. I will now uh, conclude with a brief discussion of Malika Bahar, Princess Bahar, who is my favorite character in the whole epic. Bahar is Malika Herod's younger sister, but decides to join the rebellion. She is probably the most powerful sorceress on the side of Amr. Now, I forgot to mention that each major sorceress has her own brand of peculiar powerful magic that they specialize. Bahar, which means spring, has the most powerful magic and it's the kind of magic that is irreversible. And what she does is she's represented as this regal, beautiful young woman who flies into the battlefield on her throne. And as she faces the enemy forces, her throne is bedecked with flowers and she picks up a flower from her throne and throws it on the ground. And then she commands it to become a plant. And then from that plant, she creates a whole garden of thousands of different colors of flowers and trees with singing birds. So she creates this paradise. And it's so dazzling and so beautiful that anyone who looks at it falls in love with the place and in return also falls in love with Bahar. And after they have fallen in love with her garden and her, then they are at her command. She commands them to turn around and attack their own masters. So that's why her magic is so powerful because she can turn an entire army against itself. And another important part of her magic is that it is irreversible. No counter spell can undo her magic. So literally Afrasiab has to go and wipe out an entire army that Bahar has turned. So that's why when I read the epic, 
In my childhood, I, I loved the figure of Bahar as a female character. I mean, she was beautiful, but she was also powerful and lethal. And that's how most of the sorceresses are. And that's what kind of makes the epic slightly ambivalent because there is a gender hierarchy and the warriors are at the top of it. Since these powerful women owe their allegiance to a prince who can't really even ride into the battle because he doesn't know magic. But on the other hand, considering that it's a 19th century South Asian epic, I think figure of Bahar and even Queen Herod and others do represent a powerful female presence and a powerful female force within the epic. So that's kind of my story of my fascination with Bahar as the, in my opinion, the most powerful sorceress in this entire magical world and in this entire epic. Include, this is a brief introduction to probably the most ambitious and longest magical dastan or epic in the world, but more importantly in the South Asian Urdu tradition. Now, those of you who are lucky enough to be able to read Urdu, I highly recommend that you read at least once in your lifetime all the eight volumes of the epic. But if you cannot read Urdu and are not familiar with it, I would highly recommend that you should pick up the first translated volume by Musharraf Ali Faruqi and start reading it. And I can promise you, you will then start emailing Musharraf Ali Faruqi to finish the translation. Now, one good thing about the first volume of translation is that Musharraf Ali Faruqi also adds quite a few explanatory notes. So while you start reading the Talism, you'll also become familiar with the background of the story, but also about the Dastan tradition itself. That is all that I wanted to share today. I know that I have not gone deeper into the story and told individual episodes and the conflicts, but that probably cannot be part of an introductory conversation like this. But I do hope to eventually someday maybe record a reading of the epic or parts of the epic. And if that happens, I will certainly share it with you. That's all. Thank you so much. As always, stay safe. And from me to you, peace and love.